0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we bow before your throne this morning, we thank you that Christ is ours forevermore. That is our hope in this life and the next. And Father, we pray that as we go into your word now in Ecclesiastes, that you would open to us the truth both of the oppression and the hardness of this life and the only hope that can be found, and that is the hope found above the sun where you are seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus let us cling to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated and take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And while you're turning, I just want to tell you up front, uh, I'm going to break my own rule today. <clears throat> uh, when, when I got into the ministry years ago, I found one thing to be true, and that is that bringing up football <laughs> on Sunday in the South is divisive. But I think we can all agree to this, and that is go Gamecocks. (laughs) You know, for eight years, we've had the pleasure of ministering to the team, and you guys have done that. And we've seen athletes uh, baptized. We've baptized about 12, 13 kids now on the team over the years. We've ministered to coaches and their families. They're not with us today because they're still in Tallahassee because when you win a game at midnight, you stay the night, you know, and you take some of that $400,000 and put it to good use. (laughs) But here's the deal. Um, You've been a part of ministering to that team for a while, and many of you attend games there, and and you see the guys around town, and you can encourage them, and so I don't mind breaking my own rule, but I just had to get that out of the way, and some of them are watching us, and they're getting a chuckle out of that. I'm sure I'll get text messages. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. The Bible says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is meaninglessness. All go to one place, all are from the dust. And to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of a beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Today, I want us to look at the justice of contentment. The justice of contentment. You know, since the Garden of Eden, things have been imbalanced in this world. And if you remember in Ecclesiastes, the focus of the writer of Ecclesiastes is to focus not on the hope of eternity, but rather to focus under the sun. Under the sun, there is injustice, he's saying in our passage. Under the sun, things are not balanced as they should be. Under the sun, there's this unrighteousness, even in the place of those who are to bring right decisions, like in a court of law. That focus is no different than the focus he's already had in other passages leading up to this one. As we've seen, the writer has a very negative view. Of this world, And I said it started in the Garden of Eden because it started when we sinned. When man chose to be his own God rather than to worship the only living God, the world became broken. It's broken, and here's the reality. The world and its systems offer no solution. No right solution. Now, in our day it's no different than in their day. Right? If you start back at the garden and you move forward, what you see is a constant refrain, and that is that things are not as they should be. And one of those refrains, we're going to look at several of them today as I walk through and explain this text and then bring it home, hopefully, in the hope of the gospel. But one refrain that's repeated in the Bible is death. Death itself is not right. When we die, though every one of us will die, lest the Lord come again before that moment, but every man is appointed once to do what? To die. Every man dies. And so the most naturally, what seems to be the most naturally occurring thing all around us is one of the things that is so broken. And it's why we hurt so much when someone we love dies. No matter We can't escape it. No matter how hard we try, death comes to all of us, rich or poor, smart or ignorant, advantaged or disadvantaged. Death is a great equalizer. We're going to see that in our passage today. Also, the brokenness is seen in injustice. In the place of justice, since the Garden of Eden, there have been those who are unjust. It's no different today than it was then. It is unjust when Cain, seeing his brother's offering be accepted by God, killed his own brother. Why? Because sin crouched at the door, God said. And its desire was to rule over him. But his job was to rule over the sin. He didn't do that. And injustice took place. And the blood of Abel fell to the ground and still, as the writer of Hebrews says, cries out, right, for someone to make it right. Make it right. It was unjust. Death. Injustice. Injustice spread not just in this one instance in the Bible, but if you look at at the conquering of the promised land and we move into the period of the judges, who's ever read the book of Judges and not walked away thinking, this whole thing is messed up. Even God's people are unjust. Right? Samson given a job by God to be the great warrior, to lead the people of Israel. What does he do with his position? He he takes the position and takes for himself a Philistine woman. He would rather have a woman than have the role that God's given him. And it leads to injustice. The people of God go into oppression. Gideon, raised up by God in the book of Judges, Given a place, and here he is, this week, and from the least of them families in the tribe. And then, when he has success, what does he do? He, he puts himself out there as a god, someone to be worshiped in justice. David, the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, rises to the zenith of his power, sits on the top of his palace, scans over Jerusalem. And fixes his eyes on his best man's wife. And what does he do? He takes her in justice. And he kills her faithful husband in justice. And Solomon, his son, the same. Incapable of reigning and ruling in a way that brings things to right. Brings things to justice. This is the theme of the Bible. And the greatest injustice in all the world, the greatest injustice in all the world is not those injustices, but rather that the Son of God in flesh stood before His accusers innocent and was proclaimed, what? Guilty. And was condemned. The world is broken and it cries out for someone to fix it and what our writer is going to show us is under the sun there is no fix there isn't hope the great movements of the world all center around in some way or another this idea that we find in our passage In the 19th century, the German philosophers began to philosophize that the great problem of the world was that the wealth of the world was being consolidated into the hands of a few. And it was time for the workers to rise up in resistance. And so they fomented rebellion against governments and powers that were in charge. They based their philosophy on the reality that existed in the world. They looked around at the cities of Europe, mainly in Germany, in France, in England. And what did they see? They saw inequity. They saw the fact that people were wealthy and people were poor. They saw the fact that people were being uh, able to go and live a life of luxury and leisure as they traveled on the backs in their minds of the workers who were working 18 and 16 hours a day to produce the goods from which these rich people got richer. And what was the solution they offered? They offered a great promise of a utopia that would set the workers free. It would give the world justice. What came out of it? Nothing but death. Nothing but death. In Russia, these great ideas were put to their greatest test. The workers rebelled. The nobility was killed and hunted like dogs. A new system was put in place. And you know what happened? In that great Marxist utopia known as Russia, a few small people gathered all the wealth and everyone else starved to death. Because the systems of this world cannot fix the problem that we face, and in our day it is the same. Let me tell you from the start, neither the woke theology of the left nor the conservative theology of the right can bring ultimate freedom and justice to this world. Both of them given full seed, will lead to inequity and will lead to injustice. You sit, stunned. Because if you're honest, some of you have bought into the lie that a political system can save us. that our way's better. Jesus Christ Himself said, The poor will always be with you. Did He not? He didn't say it in despise of the poor. He said it as a statement of reality. In this broken and fallen world, things will remain broken. They will beg for a solution. And there's no solution under the sun. That's what the writer says in the very beginning of our passage is that injustice runs rampant in this life. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun. There's our phrase. It tells us the text kind of breaks up around this phrase throughout. Under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Even there was unrighteousness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. This is like a proverbial statement, a repetitive theme, a parallel statement. It's not two statements, it's one statement. Where we're supposed to receive the greatest benefit of justice in this world, there sits injustice to face us. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there's time for every matter. And for every work. And and, and in that, we think that we're reading a hopeful statement. That is true, is it not? Jesus says in John chapter 5 that there comes a day when God will judge both the evil for their deeds and the good man, the righteous man, for his deeds. The whole New Testament teaches us that this is the end of all things. In Matthew 25, everyone will stand before the throne of God and be judged on how they live their life, either under the sun or for the one above the sun. Everyone will be judged. The Bible does teach that justice comes. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do not repay wrong, for, for, for it is in God's hand that justice will be had. In other words, don't be a vigilante. Don't go out there and try to gain justice for yourself. But rather to submit yourself underneath the injustices of this world, knowing they can only be fixed by God himself. This is the teaching of the Bible. And he says it, but I don't want you to see it as he's saying it because he believes it. He's rather saying it almost as a mock, I think. A mockery that that is what's supposed to be happening, but God's not doing it. Everywhere I look, there is unrighteousness. A time for every matter, for every work. Chapter 3, verse 1. There is a time for everything. He's back to that same idea. Remember, Corey told us that's not a hopeful statement. That's a, that's a lack of hope statement. That's a statement of saying everything's going to happen. Life's going to happen, death's going to happen. Getting rich is going to happen, being poor is going to happen. War's going to happen, and healing's going to happen. These cycles of life and death and riches and poor, they just happen. And he says it here justice and injustice, they just happen. There's no relief, there's no hope. And so the problem he faces here is that injustice runs rampant in this life. It runs rampant. And so where does he go? Well, he finds an answer. Verse 19 says this. God, in verse 18, is seen as testing man to show him who he really is, to put him in his place. Why? Because verse 19 says we're just like the animals. We live and we die. We live and we die. Our breath, our life is the same. All of us are headed to one end. And that is the grave, he says. There's no focus on the afterlife or eternity in this passage. He's simply saying that in Genesis what we find is a connection between all living creatures. And that is that all of them die because of sin. Every single one. Genesis Three, verse 19. I say it over the grave of every human I've ever presided over their funeral. Dust returns to dust. That's the perspective. That's his answer. Injustice is everywhere and what's the answer? We're all going to die. We're all going to die. So he reasons down to this. Do your work and be happy in it. Do your work and be happy in it because that's the lot that God has given you. Who can know what comes after himself? Who can know? Who can know who will pick up the work that you began and finish it, if anyone will? That's his answer to injustice. Injustice is alleviated by our writer's mind when people die. When you die, you'll no longer face it. Until then... Enjoy your work, because that's what God's given you to do. Don't you feel encouraged? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I told Bruce Adams, and we were eating dinner with them this week, uh, the Friday, and I said, you know, Wednesday uh, night, Thursday morning was awful because I was depressed. You spend time in these passages seriously thinking about the problems they raise, and if you're not depressed, then something's wrong with you. But I want to see a second thing in this passage. Our writer goes further than this. He says, The injustice that's rampant in this life causes him to believe that it's better to be dead or to have never existed than to live. He goes even farther into the depths of despair. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppression That are done under the sun. So he brings this idea of oppression back up. And behold the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. He doesn't even offer hope that in this life the oppressed will find someone to help them. They'll march into the courts. One of the podcasts I listened to last year was a a podcast of a court reporter in Cleveland. And he followed several young men around and how they were brought through the system and how they sought to find justice in their cases. Now, nobody on the podcast declared that these men were necessarily innocent of what they were actually guilty of. Nobody said that. But here's what he found as he went through the courthouse. First of all, he, he went into Cleveland, and it's one of the largest courthouses in the world. I mean, it's just... Stack on top of stack, you know, building uh, several stories high with nothing but courtrooms. And it's filled with people, young, disadvantaged, often minorities. It's, it's filled. And there's this cynical spirit in the place. Prosecutors and defense attorneys meeting in lounges saying, look, I mean, what, what kind of deal can we cut? Let's just cut a deal. Even one of the young men who was actually innocent, he was actually innocent of what he was being charged with. There was a video evidence of his innocence. His lawyer told him, don't go to the courtroom. He said, we have video evidence. Don't go to the courtroom. You will still pay a price. You will still go to jail. Let's cut a deal. I can get you probation. These are live, real testimonies. Of real young men in a land where we pretend that justice is blind. I saw oppression under the sun, and the ones being oppressed had no power, and those doing the oppressing had all the power. And so he had this conclusion. I thought it better for those who had already died than those who are still alive watching this evil take place. And if that is not enough, the nihilism of that statement, if that's not enough, look what he says next. (laughs) Actually, it's better to have never been born. Job says the same thing, doesn't he? Job in his wisdom literature says the same thing. I wish the day that my mother gave birth to me and I drew my first breath had been dark, black, never existed. This injustice, this seeming cyclical injustice of oppression brings him to the thought that it's better to never have faced this life than to have lived through the injustices of this life. Now one of the struggles that we have all of us in here, some of us, not all of us, some of us, is that we've never actually bumped up against this kind of oppression. We've never faced it. We've been blessed to live in a time and a place with a status that means we don't face this kind of injustice. The deck deck is not, the proverbial deck is not stacked against us. We've skated through life, we think, because of ourselves and our good behavior, I'd like to talk to you after the sermon if that's what you really believe. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The truth is we all deserve what we don't get. But then there's a few of you. Some that I might know the stories of and many I don't know the stories of that you sit here and you hear this and you say, Exactly. Finally, somebody is talking about my life. It wasn't my fault that I was born into a family on the wrong side of the tracks, without parents who cared or loved for me. It wasn't my fault I was born under an education system that offered me no way out. It wasn't my fault that I was brought to a country Where I didn't speak the language and knew nothing about the cultures. And everything in that culture screamed out to me, you don't belong here. Some of you know exactly what this man is talking about in his writing. Because he's talking about your life. And you have thought it would be better if I was dead. Let me back up and say it another way. It would be better if I had never even drew a breath. Because the evil seems unrelenting under the sun. This life is rampant with injustice, which makes it seem better to be dead than alive or even to have never lived. Is everybody feeling cheery yet? So why title it the justice of contentment. I'm so glad you asked. Look at the next verse. Look how he brings this up again. Then I saw, remember in verse, uh, in verse 22 of chapter 3, he brought up work, didn't he? And he said, a man's best plot in life, his lot in life, is to do his work with happiness. Just do his work. And then he brings it up here in verse 4. Then I saw that toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is a proverb. It's proverbial writing. The fool folds his hands and eats himself. So the reaction of some to all this injustice, to working and working and working and never getting ahead to having the system actually stacked against them is to say, I'm done. I'll just sit back and do nothing. The end of that, the Apostle Paul says in Thessalonians that people that act that way should actually starve. If they don't work, they don't eat. And our writer seems to be pushing the same thing, is that if your response to all the evil of the world is just fold your hands and say, man, this is no good the picture is that you eat your own flesh. You eat up all your savings or all your uh, avenues of getting something to keep yourself sustained in life, and when all of that's dried up, then you consume your own self, and it's over. Second thing that we see in the text, in the proverb, is this. That a handful of quietness is better than two hands full of toil, And striving after wind. Some people fold their hands and won't work because of the injustice. And others work twice as hard to get twice as much. And he says it's striving after the wind. But listen to me. The third way is the gospel way. And it's why the title of the message. Contentment in this life can only be found in God's gospel. Better to have one handful with contentment. That word quietness in the New Testament is defined or brought out as contentment. And this is where I want to spend the balance of our time. Just describing to you what this passage drives us to in the gospel. Some of you are ready to quit and sit back and say, if Big, big Brother wants to give me something for free, then I'll just do it. And what I'm telling you is you will shipwreck your life there. You weren't made to sit with folded hands. You were made to work. Okay? Others of you say, that ain't me. Those poor sots, I'll never be one of them. But you burn the candle at both ends and work 80, 90, uh, maybe some of you more than that, hours a week. And you've got two handfuls of stuff. And you know what Jesus says about you? You will build bigger barns and someone else will spend what you made because you will die with your two hands full of stuff. So the middle is the answer. It's better to see the injustice of the world and quietly go about your lot in life knowing that God is just, content. This is is the, uh, the definition of Christian contentment so you can understand what I'm actually pushing for. I'm not pushing for laziness. I'm not saying just be satisfied, sit back like a fat cat. That's not what the Bible teaches. But listen to what Christian contentment is defined as. If you write things down, write this down. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. In every condition. We'll say it again. Maybe more than once. Because I believe it's one of the biggest plagues on the church today. The lack of contentment. We've actually joined the world in oppressing others. There is no mistake in the fact that most seminarians who get pulpits in this, in this world burn out and end their life near shipwreck, if not shipwrecked. And the church's answer is, must have been flawed. Something wrong with him. If he'd have just been a better person, I bet he had some kind of secret sin. Never a thought that even the way God's church treats God's people is oppressive never thought of it Christian contentment is that sweet is that sweet inward quiet gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition that's not my definition. That comes from Jeremiah Burrow, a Puritan. If you have not read his book, The Rare, a Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, you need to buy it or get it on audiobook, and you probably need to read through it several times. It's not very long, but it is not easy. The problem with all of us, when we see the world the way it is, the rat rat race that all of us are being pushed to go through, the meat grinder that's trying to just turn us all into the sausage that brings back prosperity, the problem is we join it. And we think, well, I can get in it, but I can stay free from it. You can't. When you join it, you become it. You think like it. And everything in your life becomes about having more. Having more, having more, having more. You have a home, which in anywhere in the world would be considered the top 1% in the world. But what do you want? The neighbor's house. You work overtime after overtime after overtime while your children put themselves to sleep. Without the presence of a father. Or a mother sometimes. Because, you know, we just got to make ends meet. Running and running and running and running to do what? To prove ourselves? To have more? To stay ahead of everyone below us? To climb the ladder one more rung no matter whose head we have to step on to get there? This is the injustice of the oppressor that our writer saw. And he said, I'd rather have never lived than to live this way. Young people, the worst mistake you'll make when you graduate college is to choose where you live based on how much money you can make. You need to choose a place to live that has a godly home for you. A spiritual home for you. A community of faith that drives you to know Jesus Christ, not just run the race For more things. We've built a world, a Christian world, that's all about looking like the others with Jesus slapped on top of it. And Jesus is saying, you are the oppressor. Listen to me, if you don't believe me, get out of maybe your normal reading pattern and read The minor prophets, what did they thunder against the people of God? You have taken bribes and you have held down those who are oppressed in this world. And I hold you accountable for that. You know why I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? It wasn't about homosexuality. It was because of the pride and hubris that they had toward those who had less than them. And they oppressed them and I punished them for it. And you think you escape? They're not my people. You are my people. You think they they didn't escape? You won't either. The blood of Abel cries out for us, church, for justice that can only be had by being content in who we are in God. And who we ought have in Jesus Christ. The sweet inward righteousness that is quiet and gracious in frame of spirit. Knowing that God has put me right where I'm at. And there I am happy in him. I just heard a testimony of a Christian brother. And I won't call his name because I didn't ask his permission to share this story. He doesn't go to this church. Somebody shared the story to me secondhand. Listen to me. It's a glorious story. This young guy's got a young family, went to work at a big corporation not not long ago, about three months ago, and he's working hard. And when he took the job, he said, listen, I will work hard for you, but here's what I can't do. I cannot work on Sundays. I'm committed to being with God's people. I'm committed to being a leader in God's house on Sunday mornings. And they said, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that's fine. We'll work that out. He took the job. He's been there three months. Last week, on Thursday, they came to him with an emergency. We need you to work on Sunday. He did it. Because he was trying to be, you know, helpful to them. He put the church in a bind, but the church was gracious, and they let it happen, and he worked last Sunday. And you know what happened this week? They had an Emergency. And praise God for this young guy who, not disrespectfully, but sternly, just looked at him and said, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. When I took this job, you told me I wouldn't work on Sundays. And I have commitments to God's people on Sunday, and I'm not working. And you know what that might mean? He might lose his job. But you know what it also means? He's content with where God's got him. Oh, church, if we could grab hold of this for ourselves, it would change our children. It would change our relationship with our wives and our husbands. It would change our relationship with one another. I did not know. I'm getting ready to close. I I promise I didn't know that my dad was going to be here today. But he's sitting right up there. So now I will talk about him in front of him. (laughs) Y'all know I grew up on a farm. My dad taught me how to work. Work hard. Well let me tell you, my entire life, I can count on one hand how many times, how many times my dad worked on Sunday. Not because there wasn't something to do. There was plenty to do. But it was more important that he teach a Sunday school class for young adults, be a deacon in our church, sit by my mom, thump me in the ear. (laughs) Because sometimes I needed it. Or to look back at the youth section and point like this. One, I knew exactly what that meant. You don't want to get to three. Right. There were people who tried to pressure him to do it. And he said no. And it impacted my life. He taught me another very simple truth. I, we were, I was in Illinois uh, just not long ago talking to him on the phone. We were reminiscing about it. Our family didn't have a lot of material things. But here's what I got to do. I got to go to work with my dad. I got to go hunting. I got to go fishing. I got to sit under the shade tree in the barn lot on hot days. <laughs> I got to sort bolts in the bolt bin. That's the worst job on the farm, right? But, but listen, this is what I'm trying to tell you. Because my dad cared about investing in me, because my dad would sit me on the wheel well of a, of a piece of equipment he was working on and say, tell me what you heard in Bible school or tell me what you heard in Bible class. And I would tell him stories about the Bible. He always was encouraging that, that that's what matters in life. And you know what was true? He taught me that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, son. When the worms came, In the early 90s, guess what they did? They ate our cotton like they did everybody else's. My dad didn't get any earthly reward for doing what he chose to do. But here's what happened. He got an eternal reward. He got an eternal reward because he raised a family. And that family now is serving the Lord. He could have made more money. Could have worked less hard, (laughs) maybe. He could have prioritized different things. But I'm standing as evidence of one who says, thank God he didn't do that. And I'm encouraging you from this text to do the same thing. Don't become an oppressor trying to get one more thing that in the end won't matter because you're going to die just like the beasts of the field. But instead find the rare jewel of Christian contentment that says God has me like a good father right where I'm at. And so therefore, I will live my life gladly under his great providential care. Let me read one passage as we close. 1 Timothy chapter 6. The apostle Paul says this to his young protege in the ministry. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6 says, But godliness... With contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, those who desire... Not those who are rich, those who desire. They give their life to it. Fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires and plunge people. Notice how he changes. Your desire to be rich plunges people, plural, plunges people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through these cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The hope of the gospel is you can be content right where you are because your Father has put you there. And you should be the best worker there has ever been in your company, in your place of business, in your lot in life. You should be the best you can be at it. Not satisfied with half work, half effort, folding your hands and being idle. Work hard. But don't get it to the point where you're oppressing yourself and others with this desire to get another thing and another thing and another thing, but rather be content in godliness knowing that it has great reward. You will spare yourself from wandering away from the faith. Some of you are on the brink of wandering away from the faith because your, your labor is your God and piercing yourself through with many pains. The hope of the gospel sets you free from that oppression. So don't join a cause. Don't get woke. And and don't think some political right figure is going to save the world. Neither is true. Socialism isn't going to save the world and capitalism isn't going to save the world. Jesus Christ saves the world. And in his economy, he has placed us where we are that we might be content, godly, and satisfied in him so that we bring others to him. So we change our children and our homes for his sake. So we push back against the oppression of this world. What if you take a stand like that guy I described and then five more people take it and eight more people take it and a hundred people take it and a thousand people take it? We won't need a union Guess what that big company will do? I guess we need to shut down on Sunday. Nobody will work. They work hard 6 days a week. They're not working on that 7th day. I just shut it down. Change doesn't come from marching with picket signs. It comes from living the life that God has called us to live authentically among our people. Okay? That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray together, Father. As we close this time in your word, and we've been faced with our own sin in this area, and I know many of us have been convicted, and even depressed. I've been depressed. And yet, as only you can, your word and your truth has now brought freedom to my life, joy. And so, Lord, I ask that you would just use this time that we've had together. Use it in our home groups to have productive conversation about these things, and to hold one another accountable to the truth. And Father, that you would change us, that we might be change agents in your kingdom for your